Uh, Mark chapter 13. Um, I'm going to read the whole chapter to you guys. It's like a very, very long chapter, and it's pretty intense. If you're, uh, if, if you're new today, if you've never been here before, things can get a little bit different, and you'll later, but um, uh, so I'm going to read the whole entire chapter, and this kind of breaks, if you've been uh, following along in the book of Mark with us, th- there's, there's a difference here, the way that Jesus speaks than the way he's previously spoken. Um, he, he gets real uh, eschatological here, he starts talking about the end of all things, and it gets, for some of us, this might be the first time you're, you're hearing something like this, so it might be a bit weird for you, but, um, but we'll just try to we'll take this and see what the, the Lord wants to speak to us this morning. So I'm going to read verses, uh, actually I'm going to read the whole chapter, and then, uh, and then we'll pray, and we'll ask God for help. Uh, verse 1 in chapter 13 in the book of Mark. And as he came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, and they were walking outside of the temple, remember the temple's giant and beautiful and amazing, and, and one of the disciples is stopped, he was probably really into architecture or something, I don't know. He's like, look, teacher, look what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, you see these great buildings? There will not be left one here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, Andrew asked Jesus privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must be preached and proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, don't be anxious beforehand about what you're going to say, but say whatever is given to you in that very hour, for it is not you who speak but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house, nor take anything out. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not happen in the winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God has created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut those, door, those days short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he shortened the days, and, when, and then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false and false prophets will rise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all of these things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, 
The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heaven will be shaken and then they they will see the Son of Man coming in the cloud with great power and glory and then he will send out angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out leaves, you know it's summer, that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that it, it is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning the day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves his home and he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to everyone, stay awake. That's the text that we will talk about today. Let me pray, ask God for help. Lord, I thank you so much for your powerful word. And Lord, you've said a lot of things. We've, there, there's a lot of what you've said recorded in the book of Mark. But this, I confess, I admit, that is the most daunting. This is the most cryptic. This is the hardest thing to understand. And Lord, I don't really think we'll fully understand. You you said that no one knows the day or the time or the hour. So if we talk about days and times and hours, it's just futile. So would you minister to our hearts? Pray for this church, God, that we would long for your return. That we would hope for your return. Not in some escapist sort of way where we just want to leave this world and we can't wait for, for you to come back. But then, on the other hand, not in this way where we think you're going to come back next Tuesday, and so we just kind of get everything ready, and when you don't, we just kind of give up. Would you make us hopeful, expectant, ready, watchful, on guard? Do that this morning. I pray for help. Holy Spirit, I pray you would anoint me and use me this morning. So many things that I really want to say, and so hard to put words to them, and so I pray, Jesus, that you would help me. We love you, God. We look to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus here um, is in the last week of his life. He has come into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey, lowly on a donkey, on the foal of a donkey. He comes in, palm branches are laid, everyone's excited, yelling Hosanna, screaming, chanting his name. He gets into Jerusalem, he goes up to the temple, he leaves, he comes back the next day, he starts thrashing the temple, throwing over tables, making a whip out of what? I don't know, making a whip out of something. And he starts whipping, telling people to leave who have set up in the temple commerce. After he does that, everyone starts questioning him. All the religious leaders start walking up to him. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sanhedrin. Everyone with, the, with political or religious power at that time come up to Jesus to begin to question him. They ask him strange questions like, let's say this woman marries a guy, and the guy dies, and then she marries her brother like the law says, and then he dies, and then so on and so forth, and she marries the whole family. 
who will she be married to in the resurrection? Questions like that. Or should we pay taxes to Caesar or to God? Questions like this to trap him, and every single one of them he answers perfectly, perfectly. Now, they're in this temple. As they were leaving now, one of the disciples, who was probably into design, maybe interior design, maybe architecture, something, stopped and was like, everybody, can we just, everybody stop right now? Just take in the architecture of this temple. Look at the buildings. I do this all the time with my wife. Like, we're walking down the street, so I'm like, stop, look. She's like, what? I'm like, the skyline. She's like, yeah, I know, I, I live here. I'm like, but no, you have to look, look, you know, that, I'm doing that all the time. Wherever we go, I love, I like to stop and just look. This is what happened here. The, the disciple just stops and goes, Jesus, stop, everybody stop. Look at the arch- look at the beauty of this building. And he was right. This temple was absolutely gorgeous. The stones that the temple was built with were some 60 feet big weighing over a million pounds. So beautiful and so, these stones were so hewn so beautifully and so white that from a distance, the mount, uh, the temple mount looked like a snow-capped mountain because of the temple that stood upon it. It was just gleaming white. It was beautiful. And it was ordained with gold, so much gold that Josephus, the Jewish historian, wrote that when the sun rose, it would shine off the temple mount in such a way that looking at it was like looking at the sun. You couldn't even do it. It was that beautiful, that amazing. And then Jesus drops a bomb on them. So they're just like, oh, look at how beautiful. Look at this. Look at, look at how, how are the architecture. Look at these. Look at how ornate this is. Look at the gold and the stones and the, and the ivory and all the pillars and all of these things. And Jesus is like, you want to know something? Let me tell you something. There's going to be coming a time when not one of these stones will be stacked on another, where the whole temple will be leveled. Now, to a Jewish mind at that time, it would have blown their minds. It would have been like, what are you talking about? The temple was the center of, of religious activity, of culture, of social activity, of econo- econ- their economy. It was the center of the world for them. And it was so big and so beautiful. How can anyone destroy this? And so they walked through the Kidron Valley up to the Mount of Olives. And if you've ever been to Israel, the Mount of Olives is a wonderful view of the Temple Mount. And as they're sitting there talking, the disciples start to bring up, okay, Jesus, talk to us about when these things will happen. Notice they say these things. When will these things? What things are they talking about? What was the last thing that Jesus was, was telling them? When the temple would be destroyed. When will these things happen? When will the temple be destroyed? And so Jesus begins to answer them, and what Jesus does is this dance, this um, eschatological dance with his answer. It's kind of long, as you guys read, as we read. What he does is he dances between these two things, those things and, or these things and those days. When will these things happen? Well, these things will happen like this, and it will look like this, and this, and this, and this. And then he jumps. He jumps to, but in those days. See, what Jesus does here is that these things, when he talks about these things, they would happen in their lifetime. That's what he said. The, not a generation will pass away before these things happen. And he was right. In AD 70, Jesus is describing the Jewish war that would happen in their generation. 
a horrific, a horrific war that culminated in Titus, the Roman general, rolling into Jerusalem, ransacking the temple and leveling it to the ground. The ruins can be seen today. I've been there. I've been on the ruins in the Temple Mount. Absolutely leveled it. But then what Jesus does, he jumps from these things to those days. And so he makes this eschatological jump to the very end of time. Look at Mark chapter 13, verses 24 through 27. See how he leaves behind these things and he jumps to, but in those days, jumping to the very end, verse 24. In those days, and this is a fairly, fairly gnarly paragraph right here. If you read it, you're like, oh my, I thought maybe that was last week when we had so much rain, but no, that's not, that was not it. Like when the, the, the you won't see the sun anymore, you won't see the moons, look, look what it says. But in those days, okay, speaking about the end of days, after that great, crazy, gnarly, awesome tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Then he will send out the angels to gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven." This is normally what psycho people quote in movies, right? Like, like people in prison um, or, or, or people that are, that are like in movies that are like crazy or serial killers or something, they start quoting things like this, in the end of days, oh, the sun will turn. And that's just, just what they do. So Jesus is saying, it's like, well, you're keeping me out, Jesus. I mean, you're, you're always talking about love and the kingdom of God and it being like a seed. What are you talking about? The moon will turn this way and the sun and the stars will fall from the, fall from the sky and the Son of Man will come in the clouds. What are you talking about? What Jesus is talking about here is this is known as the second coming of Jesus. And some of you guys are like, wait, second coming? I thought he has already come once. I know that maybe for some of you, maybe just a little bit of you or a lot of you, I don't know, the second coming of Jesus is something absolutely new. See, the first coming of Jesus was this. He came as a baby, meek, mild, lowly, riding in on a donkey. The second coming, he will be riding in on clouds, not a donkey. He will be riding in on clouds with power and great glory. Kind of skipping ahead here, but I want you to look at this. If you have a Bible, turn to Acts. Look at, let me read you Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, verse, verse 6, this is after the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. He's with his disciples on the Mount of Olives, the same place that this is, uh, this is happening as we're reading this morning, the same place. And in verse 6, when they come together, they ask him the same question. Verse 6, and when they had come together, they asked Jesus, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Tell us, when will the end of all days come? When will the, re- the kingdom of God be restored? And he said to them, same thing he said to them in Mark, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, they were looking on, and he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Now, this, this is one of the coolest scenes, I think, in the Bible. Jesus is standing there with his disciples. They're like, hey, when is the kingdom of God coming? He's like, it's not for you to know. Only the Father knows that. Okay, okay. And then he starts going, 
taking off, like flying, okay? Like little bit, little bit, and then shoots up in the clouds, and then the, all the disciples are like, that just happened. Like Jesus just flew away. And he's there, and it says he gets in the cloud and he disappears. And, and I don't know how long this took place, but I would imagine, this is why I would love to see in the scene, disciples, well, I mean, what happened if, if that happened to you? Okay? If you're talking there with somebody and your friend, and they're like, I'm going to come back, but you don't know when, and they shoot up in the clouds. You would be like, and you would, you would stand there for days <laughs> looking at the cloud. It's like, is he coming? I think I see him. Is that? No, that's not him. Wait, no, no. That, that cloud, that cloud's definitely Jesus And there. You would be standing there. And I, I imagine that they would have been standing there for a long time unless two angels show up and like, hey, carry on, move on, guys. What are you guys doing? Look, look what it says. It says, um, and as he, and he said these things, he, a cloud took him, he shot up in the sky, a cloud took him, and when they were gazing into heaven and went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. Like if I was an angel, I would have creeped up. Like strolled up, white robe, and just been like looking up with them. Just, and they're, I don't know if they, like, whoa, what are you doing? Like, who are you guys? Why, why the robes? We don't understand. And then this is what they say to uh, the, the disciples. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? I mean, they're standing there just looking probably, I don't know for how long, probably for a long time. And they said, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He will come back as a baby? No. He will come back on a cloud. He will come back in a, a cloud. How did he leave in a cloud? How will he come back in a cloud? Now, why a cloud? In the Old Testament, a, the cloud represented the presence of God. He will come back and bring in the presence, the kingdom of God. He will come back. Now, why will Jesus come back again? Here's why. We're told here, Mark, he will come back to gather the elect. Those who love, trust, follow Jesus. Those who have been chosen by God, he will come back to gather his own. Why else will he come back? Jesus will come back to judge the living and the dead. Now, this is a pretty difficult one for some people to get over. You mean Jesus didn't come back and judge everyone? I thought you said he doesn't judge. I thought you said he didn't come to condemn. No. The first coming, he came to bear our condemnation. He will come back again to bear the sword. He will come back again to not only gather the elect, but to judge the living and the dead. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses, verse 1 says that Paul writes, Jesus Christ, the judge of the living and the dead, and he charges Timothy, who he's writing to, Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead, I charge you by his appearing. He will come back soon, Timothy, and he will judge the living and the dead. Because he's coming back, and because he's going to come to judge the living and the dead, preach the word. Live this way, because Jesus is coming back. Not only will he come back to gather the elect and judge the living and the dead, he will come back to restore all things to bring total and complete restoration. The second coming of Jesus is the dominant hope of the New Testament church. The second coming of Jesus is the dominant hope of the New Testament church. Now let me stop for a second here. 
this is where my notes stop. As I was studying and writing and preparing for this Sunday, looking at Mark chapter 13 going, oh my gosh, this is so daunting. Where do I start? What do I do? And I was studying and I was writing, and as I wrote this sentence, I had a lot after the sentence, but it would pretty much got deleted. I can't leave from this sentence. And so from here on out, this is why I say it's a bit different if you're the first, if you're first time here, I'm just going to shoot from the hip. I'm just going to share with you my heart because I cannot, as one of the pastors at this church, move on from this sentence without saying this, that I don't believe this is true of me. And this is why I can't move forward in my own notes. When I look at the dominant hopes in my own life, the dominant hope is not the second coming of Jesus. And I say that as a confession. I'm confessing that to you. There's so many things that dominate my hope that I hope for. Noble things, good things, like for this church to be healthy, that my marriage would be healthy. All of these great and noble things I have that, 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 we make, that we make budget, that the church continues to grow both in depth and in width. I have a lot of great hopes, but does this dominate my hopes? You see, the New Testament church, it dominated. Every New Testament writer is always talking about the Lord is coming quickly. He, that is our hope. He's coming back to gather us to himself. Actually, the, whole, the entire Bible ends that way. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 20, it says, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. See, the second coming of Jesus to gather the elect, to be with him, was the dominant hope. I mean, if you love Jesus, why, would, why wouldn't you not hope for that? If there was someone that you absolutely were in love with and you were separated by distance, what's the dominant hope? of your life to be with them. If Jesus has all of our love and all of our affection and we love him more than anything else, our hope is to be with him. And again, as confession, I would say that's not an operating hope in my life most of the time. The second reason why I can't move on from this point is I don't think it's true of our church. This church in these walls. I don't believe the dominant hope at Reality San Francisco is the hope of his return. It's not really a reality in our church, no pun intended. Now I understand some of us, it's just plain ignorance. We didn't know there was a second coming pastor. If you would have told us, we might have been excited about it. But we didn't know that there was a second coming. Okay, you're off the hook. But a lot of us that know that Jesus is coming back, this is not a hope. And this is why I say this. And I want to say this with all humility. I want to say this, guys, knowing I want you to understand that before I stand up here, there's a lot of And so, 
as I say these things, know that I, I say this in all humility. And I say this for the people inside the four walls of this church that say and claim that they love and follow Jesus. So now I'll say it. The reason why I don't think that this is such a hope in our church is that there's a lot of us that live like there is no judge. There will not be a judge that comes back to judge the living and the dead. Jesus won't suddenly appear and judge me. We, I believe, a lot of people that live in San Francisco, inside the walls of this church, inside the walls of the church, live like our parents are on a long weekend and we're home alone with no accountability. We can do whatever we want. We can believe whatever we want. We live by our own rules, our own curfew. We sleep with who we want to. We spend our money on what we want to spend it on. We are lazy when we want to be lazy. We're not watching. We're not ready. We're not alert, and we're not awake. And so before, I, I couldn't even explain to you what Jesus means here in chapter 13 until we as a church are like, but we want Jesus to come back. And we live with this holy, reverent excitement and fear of his return. Until we get there as a church, I do not believe that we can even handle this teaching. And so again, I look at myself first. As I was writing, I'm like, okay, this is good. That's a good point. That's a good point. Okay, that's a really good argument. I think I need to say that. Okay, I'm going to talk about the judge and why it's good that the world is judged and why it's bad that the world is judged. I'll, I'll do all these things and arguments, and I'm thinking, wait, do we really want him to come back? There's 17 imperatives in this section. Jesus reveals the future only to impact our present. He never tells you the future to go, you want to know the future? So you can gamble on it? So you can write a book about it? He reveals to us the future that it would change our present. And the reason why Jesus reveals the future of all things and that he's coming back is that it would change the way we live right now. How do we make Jesus' return our hope? says in Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared. It has appeared in Jesus Christ, bringing salvation for all people. It's available for all of us. Training us. Notice that the salvation of God trains us. It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The second coming of Jesus should inform our ethics, our morals, but it also should inform our work and our schooling, and our marriage. When I mean that Jesus could come back any moment, I am not telling you to drop out of grad school. I'm not telling you to quit your internship. I'm not telling you to quit your job. 
I'm telling you to let that inform the way you work. Let the second coming of Christ inform the way you do grad school. Let the second coming of Christ inform the way that you are artistic. It should inform, inform your life to where at any moment you know that the job that you're doing, you're doing it for an audience of one. You're doing it for the glory of God. Your relationships are the same thing. It should inform everything. So there is teaching that goes around that says, Jesus is coming, and there's actually a bumper sticker that says, Jesus is coming, quick, everyone look busy. And that's kind of this attitude like, you know, okay, I'm just going to act like I'm doing something. So when Jesus comes, I'm like, I have like a mop. I'm like, ah, serving. (laughs) And that's kind of how we feel. What Jesus is doing here is he's saying this. And this is that that, that, that last um, parable that he tells the second coming of Christ is like a, a, a master who goes away and he leaves someone in charge of a door. A door. That's it. Just watch the door. And you don't know when I'm coming back. It's like that. To where you realize you have really one thing to do. You and I are, are like faithful. We're faithful to Jesus. No matter what we do. And we know at any moment he can come back doesn't scare us. I think there's a, there, it, it was really scary in the 70s when this uh, movie came out called A Thief in the Night. Normally, you're afraid of thieves in the night. You're like, Jesus is a thief in the night? I'm afraid of that. He says he comes like a thief in the night in that you don't know when. But for the church, he comes like, actually like an invited guest. We cannot wait for his return. And the reason why you and I can say, I cannot wait for Jesus to come back, is that for the, the person who's placed their hope and their trust in Jesus for salvation, the end has already come. Let me tell you what I mean by that. What I mean by that is that the end, the end of all things is Christ coming back and judging the world. That's already been done on the cross on our behalf. So all of our sin, all of our wrongs, misdoing, all of these things, Christ has paid the penalty for. The judgment has already taken place. But what that does to the believer who puts their hope in Jesus is that now our lives are informed by that. And so by the grace of God, we're trained to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. And the only way that I really know how to get our hearts to really want and long for the blessed hope of the return of Jesus is by repenting, which is the greatest word in the Bible, Because Acts says that through repentance, times of of refreshing will come from the presence of God. It also happens as we worship. And so, as a church, as a young church, as a church that I don't think anyone, including our staff, 
expected it to happen or grow the way it has been. I really want to say as one of the pastors here at the church that I don't ever want to become a church that doesn't look like a biblical church. The biblical church longed, longed to be reunited physically with their Savior. And we need that same longing. We need that same hope. We need that same fear. And that's going to take a lot of us, maybe some of us, maybe most of us, to repent. To confess to God, I have been living like there is no judge. That you're not, you're not going to ever come back. Jesus tells a parable about that. Well, Matt, my master's gone. I'm going, to keep, I'm going to beat my servant. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to get drunk. I'll just do whatever I want to do. And the master comes at an hour he wasn't expecting. We want to be ready for the return of God. And so as we pray, I want to pray for us. I want to pray for this church that we would be a people who are hoping for his return. And that informs the way that we work, the way that we play, our ethics, our morals, our evangelism, our love, our relationships, our friendships, everything. Let's pray. Lord, there's no mistake about it that this church is here to please God. We're here to please you. That's it. And Lord, I, I ask God that you would uh, bring us to this place where our lives and what we do and, and who we're with and what we, what we spend our time on and our money on and, and, and the way that we work and the way that we go to school and everything, Lord, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do for the glory of God. And Lord, I confess that um, I have not longed for your return, hoped for your return in the way that I've hoped for other things. And so I pray that, that this church, our love for Jesus would grow. That our love for you would grow. That we would love you more. <coughs> Thank you for loving us first. In Jesus' name. Amen.